You know, Christians will often say, well, I'm willing to die for the Lord Jesus. Well, that's good. That's wonderful. But very few people, a small, small, small percentage in the history of the church have ever actually had to literally die for the Lord Jesus. It's quite another thing to live for Christ. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We turn the corner today in our study of the book of Romans as we move into chapter 12, which begins the practical section of this great epistle. As we will see, the practical section deals with how we are to live in light of everything the Apostle Paul has written up to now. So let's join Pastor Brogy as he looks at finding God's will for your life in today's message entitled, Finding the Will of God. If you were to pick a number of books on discussing how to find God's will for your life, I suppose there are as many opinions as there are books. In fact, I have two books in my library that give almost the exact opposite conclusions as to how to find the will of God for your life. Perhaps you've discovered in your own experience that when someone talks about how to find God's will, they give some unique, some novel approach that they've experienced. And often they give some strange testimony that this should be how you should find the will of God for your life. Now, with that said, I, I want to ask you a question. If you met Jesus Christ face to face today as a believer, and you had just one question that you could ask him, what would you ask him? Maybe you would say, Lord Jesus, tell me, what is your plan? What is your will for my life? That's an important question to ask. It's a question the Apostle Paul asked. Lord, what would you have me to do? In fact, he spent his entire life trying to find the answer to two questions. Who are you, Lord? And what would you have me to do? And that's important. He didn't ask, what would others have me to do? He didn't ask, what do others want me to do? He said, Lord, what would you have me to do? Surveys that measure the felt needs of Christians when asked, what subject do you want your pastor to preach on? And we as pastors get these surveys from time to time. The number one subject that typically comes up over and over and over and over again is how do I find God's will for my life? Now, many Christians are waiting for some feeling. They're waiting for some dramatic experience. They're waiting for some momentous event in life, like walking through the house, slipping on a banana peel and falling on a map. And right before them is the, is the country of China. Oh, Lord, you must want me to go to China. No, oh, maybe he wants you to empty your trash and clean up your house. So how do you really find the will of God for your life? Well, interestingly, Paul does not tell us in our text this morning to find the will of God, but to do the will of God. And you discover that when you do the will of God that you do know, you will find the will of God that you do not know. Now, if you have a bulletin, if you're new, there's a note-taking outline there that you might find useful to jot down some thoughts today to go home for further reflection and study. But I want to begin by reading our passage of Scripture. I'm reading from the New American Standard this morning, Romans 12, the first two verses. Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, 
which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. When I was growing up, every Sunday morning, my dad would get the New York Times, and he got the paper, not so much for their liberal perspective, but he got it for the New York Times book review, and in that section is a crossword puzzle that those of you who do them, they tell me it's the hardest one printed in the nation on a weekly basis. And I remember just a few years before he died, he did those right up to the end of his life, and I was looking at it one day, I said, how do you come up with some of these answers? I mean, some of these words are so obscure, you'd need almost an unabridged dictionary to find the answer. And he said, well, Carl, the, the key to finding the answers to this puzzle or any really crossword puzzle is not just to work the vertical, but the horizontal both together. You have to work both together to find the answers. And of course, as a pastor, we use those terms all the time, the vertical dimension and the horizontal dimension of the Christian life. And really, to find the will of God, you have to develop both the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of your life. And so when we come here to the 12th chapter, we really come to another turning point in the book of Romans. If you will remember, in Romans 1 through 11, he deals largely with doctrinal issues. He, he talks about things like our salvation, justification, sanctification, condemnation, he talks a lot about Israel and 9 through 11 and their role in God's plan. And, and people love to explore those topics. And if you talk to them about Romans, they'll say, well, yeah, let's talk about God's eternal wrath. Let's talk about justification, election, predestination. Let's talk about Israel. Let's talk about those things. And very often they are working just the vertical doctrinal dimension of their life, but they don't really put it into shoe leather. And so what Paul does in this epistle is he moves from the vertical to the horizontal. He comes to the practical side of the book of Romans, and he begins to speak to us about how it is that we are to apply these great truths. And it's not unique to Romans. It's true to all of his epistles. He moves from doctrine to duty, from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, from our belief to our behavior. If you remember the book, here's the big picture again, just to refresh your minds. If you remember, there are three key dimensions to it. God's righteousness revealed in chapters 1 through 8. In chapters 9 through 11, God's righteousness vindicated. Bring up the slide, if you will. And then in chapters 12 through 16, God's righteousness applied. One section deals with the doctrinal section. It deals with those essential truths if we are to grow up in Christ. 9 through 11, a section often misunderstood, deals with the national section of Romans, Israel. But when we come to 12 through 16, he applies God's righteousness. How do we flesh it out? And so it's what we often call the practical section of Romans. In one word, the doctrinal section could be summarized with the word salvation. The national section with the word sovereignty. And the practical section with the word service. Let me ask you a question. When God looks down on the people of Community Bible Church, what is it that makes God smile? What is it that would please the Lord as he looks on this assembly of believers? It's certainly not the fancy building or all the high-tech components that we have. Those all have their place. But if God is to be pleased, he will be pleased if he sees his people as living 
and holy sacrifices. Now, when you come to the 12th chapter, he deals with the horizontal dimension of our worship as we serve really in two dimensions. And our service goes in two ways. You can take all the service a Christian does, and it's either to the lost and trying to win them, or it's to the saved and trying to serve them. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. God, you would think, would just demand service. But God came down and zipped himself up in human flesh, and he became a servant to us. Jesus said, whoever wishes to be great among you, let him be the servant or the deacon of all. Whoever wishes to be first among you, let him be a doulos, a bond slave. And remember, he said, whatever you did to the least of these, my brethren, you did to me. And so if you're serving others, those who are lost, and we ought to, we ought to care for the souls of men. And if we're serving God's people, as we're going to see next time, we should do it primarily out of the area of strength that God has blessed us with. Everyone in this room has a spiritual gift. And the first application that Paul is going to make to us as living sacrifices is using our spiritual gift. And really some keys to discovering our spiritual gift are found here in the first two verses. In fact, if you look at these two verses and you're trying to discern God's will for your life today, it almost reads like a formula. Presentation plus transformation equals realization. That's good. That's a good summary, really, of these two verses. A presentation of your life before the Lord And as you're transformed day by day, moment by moment, results in a realization of God's will for your life. If you're here today and you're looking for God's will for your life, you can find it if you want it, but you will not find it without a presentation, without a transformation, which will result in a realization. And these are principles we need to understand, not just for us, but for people that we are going to disciple. You're trying to help your children to find the will of God. When you think of discipleship, they are the first line of defense that God has entrusted to you. There's someone you're working with down at the office or in your marine unit. These are important principles for us to hear today. If you're using your outline, there are three aspects to finding the will of God, really found in these three words. First, finding God's will involves a presentation. It involves a presentation. Look again, if you will, now at verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Of course, whenever you see the word therefore, you want to ask, what is it therefore? And there are many times that the word is found here in Romans. And it's usually because there's a specific point of application or a summary application that he wants to make. And there are three summary therefores in the book of Romans. The first summary therefore comes in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. This is the therefore of our justification, of our salvation. The second summary therefore comes in Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the therefore of our security of our assurance. And then the third therefore, major therefore in the book of Romans comes here in Romans 12.1, and it's the therefore of of our dedication. Therefore, and there's an urgent plea. Paul is saying, now listen, 
in light of everything that you've learned, this is what I want you to do. It's not a suggestion. This is what I think you ought to do. He's not saying, well, this is a terrific idea if you want to do it. But rather, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, some of you have a looser translation that does not say mercies, plural, but mercy, singular. But the original Greek New Testament reads in the plurality, and it's important for you to have that kind of translation because you will miss a lot. Because he's not talking about a single mercy that ends in chapter 11, but the multiplied mercies of God that he has spent 11 chapters unfolding for us. In fact, if you are new to Romans, you might want to go home this week and just read the first 11 chapters and make a list of the mercies of God because this plea is based on that. Paul is saying, therefore, on the basis of everything I've taken 11 chapters to explain, on the basis of all you've learned about the Lord God, here's how you should live for him. Therefore, I urge you, brethren. Now, the word urge is a very strong word in the original. And there's, I suppose, not a single English word that can fully capture it. The ESV says, I appeal to you. The net or the New English translation says, I exhort you. The New King James says, I beseech you. Uh, Another translation says, I plead with you. I beg you. It's like God is on his knees through the pen of the Apostle Paul asking you today to respond to the grace and the multiplied mercies that he has shown you. Now, contrary to popular theology that speaks of the fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man, something the Bible never speaks of, he is directing this plea not to people in general, but to a specific group of people, the word brethren. And it's a generic term, as most of you know in the New Testament. You could render it, my brothers and sisters. He's talking about people who have been born again. And so he says, you are to present yourself. Now, the kinds of things that he's going to ask us to do in chapters 12 through 16, by the way, would not make any sense to the unbeliever anyway. We talked about it last week. A natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. Their foolishness to him, he can't comprehend them because they're spiritually appraised. When you come to the 12th chapter, he's going, for instance, going to talk about showing kindness to your enemy, caring for him. That makes no sense to an unregenerate person. And so again, contextually, he's speaking to those who've had an encounter with the mercies of God. Now remember, this is very important because there are people who will take passages like this in the New Testament and they will teach a works righteousness when it has nothing to do with that. So Paul has spent 11 chapters not talking about what we have done for God, but about what God has done for us. And it's on that basis that he makes the appeal. And so you want to ask this morning, what is it that motivates you each week? What motivates you when you get up in the morning? What motivated you to come here today? What's the driving force in your life? What's the driving force in your children's lives? Those whom you're, is it fear? Is it guilt? Or is it the mercy of God? So finding God's will involves this presentation. God is going to ask us to present ourselves to him. And there are three aspects of this presentation. Point A, our presentation is voluntary. 
God doesn't coerce the believer into service. He doesn't bridle him like a horse and whip him and cause him to obey. God uh, is not going to conscript you into his army. No, it's a volunteer army. God has no draftees. You might say, well, surely God can command us. Surely he will force us. No, God doesn't force your love upon him. You don't like that kind of love. You don't want a forced love. Someone who says, I love you, not because they mean it, but because they just are supposed to say it. No, you want something to come from the heart. And that's what he is talking about here. Under the Old Testament, a person brought a sacrifice to God under the New Covenant because of the once and for all sacrifice made to Jesus Christ. There are no blood sacrifices. We come and we present ourselves. We are the sacrifice. We are living sacrifices. I like the story of the farmer who wants a contribution from some of the animals for his morning breakfast. And he goes to the chicken and the chicken clocks, oh yeah, I'll be happy to contribute two eggs. And he comes to the cow and the cow moves and said, sure, I'll, be give, I'll give some milk. And then he comes to the pig. And of course, the chicken says, what's your reluctancy? He says, your commitment is partial, mine is total. And we have a lot of chicken Christians today who want to contribute a few eggs. But God wants your ham. He wants your bacon. He wants a total commitment. He wants everything from you. That's what he is speaking of. And he's not forcing you, but it is a very strong word to think that God would even beg you. But he begs and he pleads and he beseeches you because he knows the will of God is that which is best for us. Present your bodies. Why our bodies? Because our body here, like in many passages in the New Testament, represent our entire person. The body is the instrument in which your soul and your spirit works. Your service is manifested through your body, your hands, your feet, your mouth, your tongue, your eyes, your mind. It's comprehensive. It's a comprehensive term. Your whole person presented to God as a living sacrifice. He's talking a whole lot more about skin and bones, but everything that we have, our plans, our aspirations, our disappointments, our joys, I lay it all on the altar before you, Lord. I give you everything. It's a voluntary presentation. Now, before we are saved, we use our body for the wrong things. Maybe you adulterated your body before you were born again. Maybe you fornicated your body. Maybe your tongue was an instrument to tear people down. Maybe you used your ears to listen to wicked, ungodly music that has now entered the front door of the church, and most Christians don't have the discernment to tell the difference. Though the lyrics may be okay, they don't even see the confusion in the beat because they're so immature. Maybe your eyes have fasted on sensual images. Well, if God has saved you, he says, now you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You've been bought at a great price, and so you are to live to glorify God in your body. We're to present our bodies as an act of spiritual worship. You tell me what you are worshiping, and I will tell you what you are becoming. You know, there are people who come to churches like this and they sing the hymns and some close their eyes and they lift their hands out of a very pure heart. 
and others, not because they're worshiping God, but they're worshiping themselves and their feelings and sensuality because I've met scores of people who come to the church and get all emotional only to find out during the week they're sleeping with their boyfriend or whatever it may be. God calls you to worship Him in purity of heart. Romans 3 describes the depravity of the human body. Our tongues that have poison in them. Our, our, our tongues that deceive. Our lips that have poison. Our mouths that have cursing. Our feet that shed blood. Now God in a regenerated person wants you to take those same instruments and use them in worship for Him. Francis Havergale in 1874 wrote a classic hymn that we still sing to this day. She grew up in a pastor's home. In her 20s, she learned Hebrew and Greek on her own. She was self-taught so she could have her devotionals in the original language. But as she moved into her mid-30s, she sensed that there was a missing dimension in her life. And one day she was reading Romans 12:1, present your bodies as a holy and living sacrifice. And as she meditated on that verse, she wanted to present every corner, every nook, every cranny of her life to the Lord. And she said, and I quote, I realize there must be full surrender before there can be satisfaction. And based on Romans 12:1, she wrote a hymn that we're still singing nearly 150 years later. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of Your love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for Thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my King. Take myself and I will be ever only all for Thee. Ever only all for Thee. Take my lips and let me be filled with messages from Thee. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall no longer be mine. Take my heart, it is thy own. It shall be thy royal throne. By the way, this is not something you just do on Sunday. There is no mention of a day of the week in Romans 12.1. Nor does he speak of some level of maturity before you can do this. If you've been saved, if you've been shown the multiple mercies of God and delivered from the wrath of God, then God has called you to present yourself to Him. It's not a burden. When you understand the mercies of God, it becomes the delight of your heart. His commandments, John says, are not burdensome. We love Him because He first loved us. So first, our presentation is voluntary. Second, our presentation is sacrificial. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Please note this word sacrifice is modified by the word living. Now, some expositors make a big deal out of the aorist infinitive that is used here to translate the word present, and they will often emphasize after you're saved, there's this dramatic once and for all presentation of yourself to God. Well, that may be true for some Christians, but contextually that doesn't flesh out. No, I, I think this is a constant reminder that there is to be a continual presentation. 
And very often there are multiple rededications and recommitments we make as God unfolds his will for our life and we discover more and more of his plan. He speaks here of a living sacrifice, which emphasizes really the daily dimension. Now, very often when people think of the word sacrifice, they do not think of it in a biblical fashion. They think of simply giving up something. That's only a partial description of the word. It's not simply giving up something, it is also doing something. And because of the sacrifices in the Old Testament were dead, people often associate death. But because of the once and for all sacrifice, Paul emphasizes the word living. This is a living sacrifice where we present ourselves to God. You know, Christians will often say, well, I'm willing to die for the Lord Jesus. Well, that's good. That's wonderful. But very few people, a small, small, small percentage in the history of the church have ever actually had to literally die for the Lord Jesus. It's quite another thing to live for Christ. And as one of my seminary professors used to remind us, and he's famous for the quote because it's original with him, Howard Hendricks used to say, the trouble with being a living sacrifice is that we're constantly wanting to crawl off of the altar. When you face a difficult day, you need to present yourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Some of you were saved out of backgrounds where you used alcohol, and now it's fashionable in evangelicals to to have their wine and to drink their beer. And some of you need to present yourselves to God, and we'll come to this when we come to the 14th chapter, and it is such a tight argument, you will see how foolish it is for the Christian today to drink Yet we just dropped Moody Radio officially last week because they sanction now drinking, smoking, and gambling for their faculty. But that's what we're about today. We're cool evangelicals. We know what we're about. And if you have any standards, you're legalistic and and rigid. When you're tempted to look at that sensual picture. You present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Mom, when you've cleaned your home a thousand times and you're tempted to leave the house in disorder and let it get junked up knowing that God is a God of order, you you present yourself as a living sacrifice and you, you, you clean it up as a worker at home. Men, when you come home and you're exhausted, and your wife needs your help. You die to self and you present yourself as a living sacrifice when your kids need that time and that focus and that Bible story. You don't feel like reading it. Or it's easier to read Bambi than it is the Bible story. You know why that is? Because so many of us don't know the Bible and also because of spiritual battle. When we as dads are called to teach and train our children in the truth of Holy Scripture, you die to self, you make yourself a living sacrifice to the Lord. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets available at the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. You can also visit us online at searchthescriptures.org or call us at 877-787-7478 
And for today's program, ask for number ROM57. Don't forget you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling that same number, 877-787-7478, or give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous contribution plays a role in providing biblical teaching and in helping to spread the gospel. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. When we return Monday, we'll continue our look at finding the will of God. Join us then as we search the scriptures.